Hello and welcome to episode three of Dot to Dot. In this podcast, we shine light on successful practice and see if it has utility with inside the school gates. So today, we're looking at the skills for the future and collaborative problem solving with Atlassian. And I have the great privilege of talking with Dominic Price. Uh, Dom, welcome to Dot to Dot. It's a real pleasure to have you join us today. Uh, in my intro, I didn't introduce your uh, your title uh, because I wanted to check if that's a real title or if that's the typo in my notes. So what's your job title and uh, can you talk us through? Yeah, my, my real job is I'm Atlassian's work futurist. Um, it's a role we landed on about four and a half years ago, so very much pre-pandemic. Um, our mission is, yeah, how can we help teams all over the world unleash their potential? And so what we sat there a few years ago, and we're like, hang on, there's, there's modern work problems. There's things people struggle with today. We need to help them fix those. But if we've not got one eye on the future, then we're not going to plant the seeds today that we need tomorrow. So we created my role to go, what does work look like in the future? And how can we impact that right now? What are the pragmatic steps we can do today to build a better future? Oh, I love that, Dom, because my, um, my third favorite Chinese proverb is uh, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Yeah. The second best time is today. And so um, <laughs> that resonates with that. Yeah. So, so Atlassian, pretty dynamic company. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear kind of the best thing for working uh, for Atlassian. It's, the, the, it's equal best and equal worst, right? It's a, Atlassian's a double-edged sword because we, we experiment on ourselves every single day to, to, to find better ways of working, better ways of doing stuff so that we can then help our customers or the education system or, or anyone who can benefit from that. So we, we, we see ourselves as a first mover, but it's a very addictive environment. When you're experimenting through problems, instead of saying, here's a known problem and a known solution, we're saying, here's a semi-known problem with an unknown solution. And that is very addictive. And it means there's probably nowhere else in Australia where I can go and work right now and get that same environment. Oh, you can come to a classroom. We throw up every environment every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of unknown unknowns in the classroom, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You've got all of those. I just, I was wondering... Um, one of the things I've been asking at the start is just to kind of tap back into your experience with education. Um, so I was wondering if you had like a, a favorite teacher or a favorite kind of lesson uh, and, and, and why they're your favorite. Yeah, it's a funny one. So I, I've got a strange relationship with education. I, I would never consider myself academic. And because of that, like I, I, <clears throat> I scored well throughout my education system. Very fortunate you know, in, in the UK with, with high school, but high school, you know, going off to university. And I've done a little bit further education in my time at work. But it's funny you mentioned that there's a couple of teachers that stood out and they were the ones that didn't treat me like an academic. They just treated me like a human. Like even though I was probably 12 or 13 at the time, I probably didn't act like a human. I was a teenage boy. I was probably a pain in the ass. But just, just the way they nurtured or the way they tried to understand or you know, there was one math teacher I had, Mr. Harrington, that used to give me slightly different homework to everyone else. Because he's like, I know you're enjoying this and I want to give you a bit more and it's a bit more complex. And I was geeking out on it. But, but you know, I don't even know if he ever marked it or I don't even know if it was him. It felt different. It felt personalized. And so just, just feeling like I was being heard and that there was a small personalization to that made a massive difference for me. And, and, and then the flip of that, whenever I felt like I was a cookie cutter, I completely disengaged. Like I, I imagine I was a nightmare to teach. Because I, I think the most common statement in any parents' evening was, apart from being the class clown, dot, dot, dot. I think it just showed to me how I feel for teachers that when you've got such a, a broad spread of kids in your classroom, 
how you tailor to all those individual needs. Because as I've learned later in life, we've all got very different learning styles. Perfect. Well, let's um, let's let's push that agony onto you then. Um, if if you were to um, if you were to teach a subject or a year group for a school term, you know, I said, Dom, look, I just I need you to come and teach a subject or or a, or a class group. What would you choose? What would be your subject you'd go for? Uh, I mean, something around problem solving, right? And I, I know that's a broad brush statement, but there's so many aspects to problem solving. There's the the maths aspect. There's like the, the psychology, sociology aspect. There's the understanding the problem. Like, how do you go about falling in love with the problem first rather than jumping to the solution? And so I think problem solving as a, as a journey, problem solving as, as an experience is not only something that I think kids will enjoy, but also you look at World Economic Forum or, or any published research on skills in demand, that articulate problem solving is, is a huge skill in demand, right? That The lateral thinking, the ability to hold two opposing views in your head and, and challenge yourself and others around you. And, and I think if, if we can get at kids to tap into that because it's head and it's heart and it's hands, right? So I think as a teacher, it's going to be a nightmare to mark. I've no idea if you've done well or not. There's, no, there's not a right or a wrong answer. But taking someone through that slightly unstructured and slightly structured experience, I think would be fascinating. Yeah, t- tell me, tell me more. I, I know that um, obviously understanding problems and um, reimagining kind of solutions is kind of core core to what you do every day, you know. And so you're talking there about like the most important aspects of problem solving. I know you've got um, some strategies like the five whys, and talk to me about how in your day to day problem solving, um, the processes and structures you kind of tap into. Yeah, it's funny. So let, 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 me, let me give you the wrong answer first, because this might be more fascinating, right? So the wrong answer in my more recent experience is there's two wrong answers. One is heavily prescribed process-based problem solving. That's good for known problems with known answers. When you go do step one, step two, step, all the way to step 10. Uh, very rarely does that work for us because we're dealing with things that haven't been solved before. And the other, the other mistake that we readily make is to start with a blank piece of paper which often causes some level of mental paralysis in our people. Because it's this weird thing where you're like, oh, this is a brand new problem. And you stare at this blank piece of paper and nothing's on it, right? There's this, you're like, where do we start? And so actually the midpoint between those is what we call guardrails. How do we give you just enough structure to get you started, but, but enough uncertainty and volatility or enough chance to impact that so you can personalize the solution to the environment you're in? So one of the examples you just gave, five whys, there's another one we use called the project poster. Where when we've got a team coming together, we say to the team, here's an outline, here's a project poster. This isn't boxes to be filled in. It's just a framework to take you through some logical questions. And, and as an example, it says, what problem do you think you're solving? What's the impact of that problem? What are your proposed solutions? There's going to be many, there's more than one. And then what are your assumptions? So PISA, problem, impact, solutions, and assumptions. And the idea is every two weeks, you test your assumptions and the ones you validate help inform what problem am I solving, what's the impact and what's the solution. And you constantly evolve those things. So, so every two weeks as a team, our teams regather and like, in the last two weeks, here's what we've learned. We thought A would happen and it didn't. B happened. Right? We thought that our customers wanted X and they didn't. They wanted Y. We thought this would work and it didn't or this did work. And so it's taking all those data points and saying, well, now we've learned that. What does that mean for how we've understood the problem? Do we understand the problem better or worse? And do we understand the impact better or worse? And are we starting to tend towards one solution more than another? There's a million and one problem-solving frameworks, 
just try the pizza one, right? I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying it's awful, but it's just enough to guide our people. And, and, and when we give them that guidance, they get to use their creativity to solve the problem rather than using their creativity to come up with a new framework, which is what happens when we give them a blank piece of paper. <laughs> and so it's, it, it's finding that balance between using your creative juices on the, and, and, and impulse on the right problem, but also having that balance of going, you need some guardrails of where to start. Yeah, I think that that guardrail concept, it speaks to me as a teacher for sure, because I've, I've had those experiences, you know, like, well, what do the kids need? Well, we need creativity, you know, so what does that mean? Well, let's set them free. And I've been guilty of that. You know, here's the blank piece of paper. And then, well, can I see an example of what a good one looks like? And, and then, uh, then I get 30 kind of replicas of the example that I've given rather than kind of that. So, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Where you were talking there, you know, we kind of got close to impact. Impact is an interesting one. For some things, it's really easy to gauge. Um, in others, it's pretty hard, you know, and like the impact is like a bit invisible. So I saw a quote from Atlassian, we believe how you work is just as important as the work you are doing. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? To my mind, there's a few things that are important. So one is it's more important who you work with than who you work for, right? So that's one of our sort of principles. You're like, what does that mean? It means that I want you to work cross-functionally with the other people you need to partner with to deliver that outcome, not, not up and down the chain of command. Progress alone isn't enough. How we get there in a, in a mindful, sustainable, scalable fashion is as important. We're adults. We're intelligent human beings. We're the A players. We'll just start. And I'm like, you can't start because you need to agree the social contracts. How are you going to work? What's in and what's out? How are you going to make decisions? How are you going to escalate? Uh, what are your rituals? How often are you going to meet? And how are you going to communicate? All those things seem like they make sense in the logical, but we all arrive with our own view of how they should be done. How do we form that social contract? And we've got a lot of very small, nimble teams across Atlassian, right? We don't build these large, monolithic functions. It's lots of small, nimble, you know, high-agility teams. But one of the things that's interesting, and we've been, we've been using for a few years now, is this concept called My User Manual. So it's just like if anyone's ever bought anything from Ikea or you've bought a new TV, or it comes with a user manual. Humans don't. Why don't humans come with a user manual? Because we're really complex. Like I don't know how to engage with you as a human. And so then my user manual is like a three-minute digest of how you deal with me, how you consume me. Like here's how I like feedback. Here's how I like to be communicated. Don't ping me an instant message or a WhatsApp. I prefer an email or I like this. I love content. Like, yeah, all the stuff that makes me tick and also all my anti-patterns, all my kryptonite, I put those on there. And it, it's kind of logical until you realize we never do it. So with the leadership team I've been a part of for a few years, we did this after a year and a half together. And one of my colleagues went through her user manual and I was like, I can't help but think you probably hate me because every way I've engaged with you in the last year and a half is my preferred way of engaging and communicating which is the opposite of yours. So I love feedback in the moment. And so when she'd do something, I'd give her feedback in the moment, which she hates. She wants feedback after the event with examples when she can consolidate and consume it. And I was doing the exact opposite of that. And so just my user manual, how I work, how I operate, how I tick, that has been an amazing thing for us to understand our different styles. And therefore, not only have we got the diversity of thought, we've built an environment that is more inclusive right? Because you can bring your true self to that environment. But that's all about how you work. It's not about what you're working on. Yeah, wow. And do you, so 
you uh, create the user manual yourself. You yeah. write, you reflect on yourself. Yeah. For, wow. I'm just, uh, I'm stumbling for words because I'm just projecting into my last class thinking uh, how they would enjoy <laughs> filling in the user manual and like the actual application in a, in a classroom as well as with my colleagues too. That's it. But, it, it. but it's just funny because it just, it's a great example of how many times in the world we've got so busy and we've filled in with assumptions. And actually, the work to create a My User Manual is minutes. The work to communicate it is a few minutes. And it doesn't feel like you moved anything in those few minutes because you didn't move a piece of work. But you're like, I've just built a foundation for us as a team that I'm going to rely on for weeks or months. So that foundation, if it's set properly, is super valuable. Yeah, when you go to look at a house, you don't go and check the foundations. You assume they're there. And it's the same for teams. If we want to build a nice kitchen renovation, let's make sure the foundations underneath can sustain that. And, and our busyness has stopped us from investing in things that are, I think, essential in how we work together and just challenge those assumptions. Yeah, processes, you know, processes that can help with personality, you know, are obviously going to be really beneficial for the group. Most times where there would be a conversation around the user manual kind of concept would be um, when there's been a flashpoint. Yes, yeah, it's conflict resolution, yeah. Yes, yes, but if you are a preemptive, <laughs> the concept of collaboration, you know, that we kind of are playing with here is... Um, it's a really interesting one in educational literature at the moment. You know, there's solid research that says, you know, when you collaborate, you know, you can create something better than you can by yourself, which is for sure true. But I do feel like sometimes, in my experience anyway, I probably have people um, that will disagree with this, but I feel like sometimes I've read the label on the can and it says collaborate for better outcomes. And then I open the can up and then we start collaborating. And I feel like it's kind of a lot of justification or compromise, you know, along the way. It's not quite what it said on the label. You know, you've spoken really positively about foundations for good teams. Um, I guess, is collaboration always better? And and if not, when does it work best? Yeah, it's absolutely not. And not only is it not always better, but, but I think it's essentially what I think we're trying to do as a society is swing the pendulum from like these top-down hierarchical structures to, to more you know, democratized and, and collaboration forms and all that. And I think we're trying to swing the pendulum too far to balance out at a midpoint. And the midpoint says situational leadership. If I think about a great example, when the pandemic hit, we didn't collaborate about whether we sent people to work from home. We just sent them all home. We, we actually got very wartime leadership for a while and it didn't even feel jarring because that's what the situation required. And, and, and if I think about it in, in some teams that I've worked with, certainly when they're having the struggles like you've explained, They've opened that kind of collaboration because they felt like they had to. But, and actually, there's one, one, of the, one leader I've been working with recently. He's like, I had this really frustrating experience. He had the answer already. He knew what he wanted to do. But he's like, well, I have to collaborate because, you know, it's the done thing. So what he did was collaboration theater, let everyone share their ideas, and then said, well, we're doing this anyway, which just really alienated people more than if he'd not collaborated in the first place. So, so actually, if you collaborate and you have no intention of listening to anyone else's idea, you've created a worse scenario than, than if you hadn't bothered. What you could have done was to say, here's my example, or here's my idea, have at it. Tweak it, yeah, iterate it for me. What he did was, here's a blank piece of paper, come up with your ideas, and whenever anyone came up with an idea that wasn't his, he told them how crap it was. And so that, that wasn't collaboration, that was just a very frustrating engagement. And so in that example, when we redid that with the team, 
he, he shared his example. And as a facilitator, my job was to say, this person is the decision maker. He's the one who's on the hook. He's the one that's going to own this. You've been invited in to collaborate. The types of collaboration we want are bang, 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 right? Just set the scene. And that was a way more effective session than what often happens is this open slather, everyone's equal, fully democratized. We don't want to offend anyone. And so, and so you end up just going round and round in circles and a lot of thrashing. And so I, I think sometimes we confuse collaboration with consensus or everyone must come in and we'll all sit around with a acoustic guitar and sing Kumbaya, which isn't what it, it's not. It's about sometimes high velocity decision making. And, and one of the ethoses we use is disagree and commit. So, so when we're having a discussion as a team, I'm like, who's making the call? And so, you know, Sophie's going to make the call. Sophie, if, if we don't get a, a full agreement here, the job is we disagree at the end of the meeting, but we commit to one action, right? We can't leave the meeting all going, I'm going to pursue my idea anyway. And so how do we disagree and commit? And that's just a, a strong human EQ element of how you collaborate without needing consensus. Yeah, yeah. I think the uh, the, the idea of having the process and the kind of cultural environment and the authorizing environment to understand the roles, you know, would be on reflection, pretty beneficial, you know, for some of the meetings that I've been in and kind of structured. And I'm interested too uh, in having a, a play with that with the kids. When you're doing group work, often the students will tell you, oh, no, I really want to be with so-and-so or I want to be with so-and-so. And it'll depend on how much they value the task. If they value the output or the grade, then they want to be with the really good independent worker who's quite switched on, who's going to drive it and they can ride the coattails. If they think, oh, it's Thursday afternoon and kind of want to see the rest of the day out, having a good time with my friends, then it becomes more very different, more sort of social. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the weird thing is, right, and I think occasionally we think that's unique to, to kids or students. It's not. Adults are the exact same. And so if you look like we've, we've published um, all of our team ways of working and I know you're aware of this, but for your listeners, we've published online called the Atlassian Team Playbook. And if you look at it, it's playful. And, and that's because adults are just big kids, right? We, we might get paid a little bit more and think we're a little bit more grown up. But the playfulness, like when we gather as a team and we rate ourselves, we use our thumbs. Like thumb up, we're, we're healthy at this area. Thumb sideways, we're not so healthy. Thumb down, we're struggling. And people are like, is there not a technology way of doing this? I'm like, probably. But I'm asking you as a human, are you good? indifferent or bad at something and just vote and then have the conversation it's gamification so we make it a game and you play it and you get a better answer and then you play it again and you play it again and so bringing some of that playfulness in has actually helped our teams and and, and our teams range from you know graduates in their late teens early 20s up to seasoned professionals in their 60s right and they all enjoy play just the same right it's it's it's, it's done it's not an accident that we've built that into our ways of working like playfulness taps into so much of that creativity and so much of the empathy part of our our beings um, that it's even more value-add than just the logic of do A, then B, then C. It's interesting you say that because um, one of the buzzwords, I think it's a good word, but I'm not sure that it has the same meaning it was intended anymore, you know, is that kind of innovative or innovation. It's kind of pitched as a bit of a super skill, you know, to be innovative. Um I wonder what your kind of take on that is or what innovation kind of means to you. And then, you know, is there a different one more than kind of innovation that we could be looking closer at? You're right. It's been massively overplayed in our lifetimes and misused and abused. I mean, there's, again, most innovation that I see in corporate, certainly around Australia, is innovation theatre, right? 
It's posters on the wall. It's for the benefit of some leaders or some board members, but there's no actual innovation. And if you think about it, true innovation is the outcome you've delivered. It's the impact on the other person, the, the customer. And so it's hard to track, right? If you look at the ingredients to innovation, which is how do you build a culture of innovation, there are quite a few knowns on that. And you're like, huh, right? So psychological safety, your leaders who create psychological safety where you feel comfortable going, Dom, I like that idea, but I want to politely disagree with it because I think we could take it down a different angle. When you feel comfortable enough to say that, we have psychological safety, right? And so that's nothing to do with innovation. It's you feeling comfortable and safe. And so we look at the ingredients to a culture of innovation and then, and then how do we build in the space and the time and the freedom? We, we get carried away with the, the corporate lingo and, the, and the, you know, the BS bingo that companies want to play versus going, what's the real thing? It could be space, it could be time, it could be psychological safety and getting people together. The science shows that diverse innovative teams you know, in business, more revenue, more top line, more bottom line, more sustainable, they're more agile, they grow quicker, like it ticks every box. But if we have the honest conversation, the hardest teams I've ever led were diverse teams, right? Homogenous teams are brilliant. They achieve nothing, but they're so easy to lead because they're all the same as you. You speak the same language. And so I think we have to be honest, collaboration, innovation, diversity, when you first do them, they all feel like a tax because they are. Once you get over the hill, you're like, damn, that's an investment. Like we are on fire right now. But you've got to invest early on in, in getting the right rituals, habits, the right engagement model. And then it's, it's yeah, the world is your oyster, but it does feel a little bit painful at first. And I think it's probably even more profound for teachers, right? But for anyone trying to you know, gather a group of diverse people together, it's hard. But once you get over the hill of that, the trajectory is amazing. I love that. Well, that kind of ties me in. I'm going to give you a, a bit of a tricky one to project into, Dom, to, to, to finish off. So uh, if, if I could give you the opportunity to teach every 10-year-old across the whole world one lesson, I wonder what you would want them to learn or what you'd want them to take away from that lesson. Ooh, that's a biggie. I think for, for, me, for me right now, it would be curiosity. I, I, th- I think there's, when I come across curious people who are like, I get the boundaries and I get the barriers and I get this one might have tried this before. But I'm just curious, and I'm going to tinker, and I'm going to try. And they, they don't get dismayed by the experiments not working, and they carry on tinkering and trying. That curiosity about what we could do, what might be, that curiosity could be a superpower for us to go, like, how, how might we build more sustainable ways of doing business? How, how might we combat climate issues? How, how might we combat our resource usage? How might we combat food shortage, waste? If, if every kid could build that muscle, Whatever area of passion or focus they've got, they then use that curiosity to amplify in that area. And if we can get that into 10-year-olds, man, they're going to build a way more awesome world and future than me and you could ever dream of. <laughs> I love that. I, I imagine, the, uh, imagine the world in 2050 with uh, all those 10-year-olds at the reins. <laughs> Dom, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I feel like I could talk to you for days and days and days and learn every single minute thanks so much for joining us today and hopefully we'll uh see more of you in the future yeah thanks for having me and thanks for doing what you do i think the, the these conversations are critical you know as we, we spoke about before we, we need to plant seeds right now for that future generation and so this kind of topic and conversation is, is crucial so uh thanks for everything that you guys do 
I hope you enjoyed my chat with Dom today. Uh, there were so many great ideas and concepts that I took away. Um, it's hard to narrow them down, but I love the idea of the user manual. You know, I can see myself using that at the start of the year, both with my class and with my team. Another thing that struck me in there was the conditions for innovation. Innovation is an outcome uh, and it's more about creating the foundations or conditions so that that can flourish. And for my last takeaway, I can't split it between the idea of collaboration theatre, guardrails for creativity and curiosity for all. I think there's a lot to take from this podcast and uh, a lot of great ideas. But as always, the idea is be critical, uh, use what's useful uh, and leave what's not. Thanks for listening to Dot to Dot. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave a review. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't, what you'd like more of or what you learned. Reviews help us reach more listeners so that we can keep bringing you awesome conversations about what you want to hear about. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up to date with each episode as they come out. Dot to Dot is a creatable podcast hosted by me, Ryder Tracy, and produced by Sophie Ellis. This episode was recorded on Darawal and Darug Country. Catch you next week.